Hello and welcome. This is the second attempt at the second episode of a podcast from my brain. I've already recorded this episode, but the sound quality was so terrible, I decided I couldn't inflict that on anybody else. So uh, for this re-recording, we're going to try a slightly different format. The first section is going to be, oh, we're going to talk about Saint of the Week, and then I'm going to talk about the ideas, and then we'll see when we get now. The ideas, just a quick refresher, this is uh, from my blog. It's an exercise in stimulating creativity or at least getting your brain flowing in the morning. You sit there and you come up with 10 ideas. They don't have to be great ideas. There is a very small amount of quality control in that you think of the idea and then you try and think, has this been done? Has somebody else already thought of this? If the answer to both of those in the next five seconds is no, then it goes in. So there's a lot of these ideas. Probably somebody somewhere has thought of them before, but it's not immediately obvious. So it goes in. There you go. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these ideas and see if we can elaborate on them further. Now, unlike uh, previous shows, because this is a re-recording, I've already seen these ideas, so there's less of a surprise, so I kind of know what I want to elaborate on. So we'll, we'll see if that works or not. It might, it might not. Who knows? But let's let's try it and see how it goes. Now, you may also notice I've got a little bit of a tickle in my throat, but that's okay. I'm here with my illustrious co-host who will take over from me if things get a bit too difficult. Say hello. Okay, he's not saying anything, but hopefully he'll step up to the mic whenever the need arises. Today's Saint of the Week, or this week's Saint of the Week. This episode's Saint of the Episode. I originally wanted to do an exploration of St. Tibulus, but it looks like St. Tibulus is not a real saint. I did stumble across this other one. Thing is, with saints, there's an awful lot of saints. There's a heck of a lot of saints. Some of them are better documented than others, and some of them are frankly obscure. So... I'm going to try and shed some light to illuminate some of the more obscure saints. Um, this particular one, St. Ursicinus of St. Ursan. St. Ursicinus is definitely in the category of obscure saints. Now, he was good friends with St. Columbanus. St. Columbanus is significantly less, less uh, obscure, but still, you know, not a top ten saint. Um... St. Columbus and St. Erxing is from Ireland, originally. They wore the Irish tonsure. You may be familiar with the traditional monk's tonsure, or Roman tonsure, uh, where they have slightly long hair, but just shaved right on the top. You know, so they got a bald top and, and hair around the outside, like, trying to encourage premature baldness. The Celtic tonsure, or Irish tonsure, is distinct from that, in that it's different. That's mostly what scholars can agree on. There doesn't seem to be a clear description of what it actually was, except that it wasn't the Roman one. Generally, it seems to be like they had long hair at the front and then had shaved the front of it um, right back to the ears. So it's like you, you're looking at them from the front and it's a bald man and you look at from the back and it's a man with regular hair. Or you look at them from the back and it's like, oh, look, you've got a full head of hair. And he turns around and it's Richard O'Brien, and like, oh, or possibly some sort of curved arrangement, or triangular even. Scholars can't seem to agree. St. Columbus and 
St. Ursicinus lived from about 560 to 625 AD. Long, long time ago, in the early days of the church. There's not a lot known about him. He, right, he was a disciple of St. Columbanus uh, when St. Columbanus worked in Gaul. Had a, had a monastery there. Possibly came from Ireland with him. But I'm thinking, I'm getting the feeling that he headed down that area and, and hooked up with him. Uh, anyway, St. Columbanus goes to France, a.k.a. Gaul, as it was back then. Sets up the church. St. Ursicinus comes along later. St. Ursicinus turns up Gaul, specifically Burgundy, at the time when St. Columbus had a little bit of fallout with the local bishops, and they get banished from Burgundy. They went over towards Switzerland, trying to find uh, somewhere to set up shop. There's not many details about St. Ursicinus, but one thing that is, is oft repeated is that he did not drink wine, and he could not bear those who served it to him, which paints him as a bit of a fuddy-duddy. Now, there's many people who don't drink alcohol uh, for perfectly legit reasons, but this not being able to bear people who served him, that's like, get over yourself. Like, you know, just say no, move on. Say, oh, no, thank you, I'd rather have a cup of tea. Except they didn't have tea in the 6th century AD. They had milk. Yeah, they, this, well, that's probably one of the problems. They had four things to drink. They had water, milk, mead, and wine. If he's not drinking wine, he's not drinking mead. So he's stuck with milk or water. And water is usually kind of manky in those days. So he's got a bit of a stick up his arse. St. Columbus is probably getting a bit fed up with his attitude. You know, they're, they're hiking around the Alps. And they're trying to find somewhere to settle. And he's getting shirty at every inn and tavern they stop back saying, Oh, how dare you serve me wine? And Columbus is like, Hey, Ursinus, chill out. We're, we're trying to ingratiate ourselves with the natives. We've already been kicked out of one country. We don't want to get kicked out again. Comes to the point where they're up a hill and St. Ursinus comes up with a suggestion. Why don't we let God decide where we're going to set up? Why don't we throw our sticks up in there, and wherever the sticks point, that's where we'll go. And Columbus is like, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Let's do that. You first. Snurkus throws a stick up. Columbus sees which way it's landing, throws his stick in the other direction. He's like, hey, look, okay, God has spoken. This is where we part ways. See you, big lad. And he's off. So then Ursula set himself up as a hermit in the Dubes Valley. And the fact that he set himself up as a hermit also attests to his antisocial attitude. He does eventually set up an abbey and a church is dedicated to him about 50 years after his death. I wasn't able to find out what miracles uh, St. Erskinus was responsible for. You need to be uh, verified to have cast, conjured, um, what's the word, committed? performed at least two miracles in order to be canonized as a saint. I wasn't able to find any record of the miracles that St. Erskinus did, but presumably they must have been after his arrival at this cave, and obviously before his 
death. Well, actually, not quite so obviously before his death, because sometimes they're posthumous miracles, which is a little bit of a cheat. But if they were after his death, it was shortly enough after his death that, you know, in this 50-year period, that people came along and said, here, he wasn't such a grumpy, bad egg after all. Um, let's, Let's dedicate this church to his name. So he must have made some friends at some point. One can only assume that uh, an extended stint in a Swiss cave made him appreciate company. An extended long time sleeping in a in a damp cave on on the hearthstone probably accounts for his patronage. He is the patron saint of stiff necks. So that's it for Saint Ursinus. This episode's saint of the episode. Next episode will have some other scene. Now, on with the ideas. As I mentioned earlier, these ideas have already seen because this is a re-recording, but let's go with it and see how it works out this time around. I'm going to try and stop talking like a DJ because I realise how annoying that is, but it happens sometimes. Idea number one. Imbue machines with self-awareness so they may still crash, but at least they feel as bad about it as you do. This has come about because I work with computers in my day job and sometimes they go wrong. And then sometimes you get a little error message that pops up and says, Sorry, oh, the computer done broken stuff. Oh. And at no point do you ever believe that the computer is genuinely sorry. It may aggravate you. It, I mean, it's a frustrating situation as it is. And this message pops up. It, it certainly doesn't help. It, the idea behind this was to make the machines feel, make them understand. Make, not to be cruel, but just to try and get a little bit of empathy. You know, the, the machine crashes, oh, it's failed at its job. But if the machine also feels bad about it, then you're maybe you're not going to get as angry about it. You're like, oh, oh, the machine's like, oh, I crashed. Oh, I'm sorry. And you're like, oh, it's okay, machine. It's okay, we'll get through this together, me and you. This reminded me a little bit of a bit from uh, Douglas Adams' book, one of the Hitchhiker's books, about a robot that had been programmed to like sandwiches. And it would say sandwich on the floor, and it had the scoop, and it would use the scoop to pick up the sandwich, and then when it stood up, it was designed in such a way that the sandwich would fall out of the scoop. And then it would see a sandwich and go, oh, there's a sandwich. And it would try and pick the sandwich up again. And then it would drop the sandwich. And it would keep doing this and loop and going on forever. And the difficult thing about the experiment was getting the robot to like sandwiches in the first place. I cannot remember the point of the experiment, but it strikes me that this might be a similar task, similar challenge. There may also be some learning in AI uh, for, for this because there's some attempts to make AIs paint portraits or write poetry or write movie scripts and these are successful for, to varying degrees. I've, I've seen one of the movies uh, that was written by a robot and it certainly has words and some sort of plot but it doesn't make any sense. The poetry Seems pretty accurate because a lot of human poetry is more or less nonsense, indistinguishable from nonsense. Portraits, what the abstract paintings again, the human abstract portraits are indistinguishable from random gibberish. Uh, just look at Pollock. 
Um, the portraits are a bit sketchy. They're not great portraits. But one of the difficult things about that kind of approach is how many people write poetry or paint portraits or write movie scripts. There's a significant number, I'm sure, but when you compare it to the entirety of the human species, hardly anybody. But think about how many people work with spreadsheets every day. Lots of people. Use that as your data set for training your AI. Not just in the calculations, but the process of working with the spreadsheet, doing the stuff, and then it crashes and get the software to dissect and emulate and eventually understand the human experience. It's an everyday thing and you're more likely to get closer to a true AI by training computers on that than you are on training computers to paint a portrait. So that's what you do. Get them to get them to work with Microsoft Office. Other office softwares are available. Get them to turn up every day at nine o'clock and sit there and do stuff with this software and then software randomly crashes and then you penalize the computer. It's like, no computer, the thing has crashed. Eventually, get it to understand the human condition. Now, speaking of abstract paintings that are nonsense, I'm sitting here, I've just noticed this one right beside me. What is it? If you imagine Spider-Man, Right? Imagine Spider-Man, imagine Spider-Man's mask, but instead of red, it's white. And this looks kind of like would be a close-up of his left eye with some splodges of gold paint strewn across it. This, was this painted by a human? Was it randomly generated by a computer? I have no idea. The fact that there's no signature on it suggests it's some sort of randomly generated piece of stuff. But yeah, you know, Get a computer paint that? Probably. What does it mean? Who knows? Nobody knows. Bringing me back to my favourite ranting subject about modern art. It For it to be successful art, the art should express the emotion or feeling that the artist was trying to express. You know, what was the artist... What feeling or emotion is the artist trying to convey with this particular work? Not a clue. Maybe he really likes Spider-Man. Or, ah, no, the superior octopus. There's a thing that's happened in the comics recently through a very complicated set of circumstances. But basically, Dr. Octopus is now a good guy. He's modeled himself slightly after Spider-Man. So he has this costume that's very like Spider-Man's, except it's white. And it's got an octopus on it. Uh, so yeah, this could be a close-up of the superior octopus's left eye. Don't think it's likely, but there you go. Art. What is it good for? Uh, let's move on, shall we, before I, I rant further. Idea number two. Maternity stroke paternity leave for child-free couples. You say, I'm extra old, I have no children, and no plans to. If you have one, you can produce a doctor's letter proving infertility. You then get some bonus holidays, maybe just half as much as actual maternity paternity leave, but you should get something because you're less of a drain on the company than someone who has a child and needs the full leave period. Now, there's a couple of qualifiers here. Obviously, a system like this, you would need to have 
some sort of limit just so you can't keep doing it over and over again it would need to be some sort of central register while person could in theory have copious amount of children you should probably go with something like the national average like 2.4 or whatever so you can only claim this twice or maybe two and a half times you would need to have some sort of test say you're you're not going to have children i mean how about from the ages of 20 to 30 you can claim it once from the ages of 30 to 40 you can claim it another time and after 40 you can claim it maybe half the time or you can save them all up until you're 45 claim or if you have some sort of document proof that you're incapable of bearing children go ahead do that there um and you get a break now the one of the qualifiers that this is not to say that people that do take maternity or paternity leave are on holiday because of course there's a lot of work involved there if you're being a responsible parent uh, but it's a break from the nine to five grind and some people use this as an opportunity to reflect and drastically change their careers as a result some people say I don't want to go back to that job. I want to stay here and I'm a parent. So a person or a couple, actually that's another qualifier. This is something that should probably only be awarded to couples who are married or in a civil partnership. Oh, unless you're old and you know medically proven to be variable, maybe. Anyway, uh, excuse me, I've got to go turn the fridge off. Okay, are we back? Yeah, we're back. You back? All right, my co-host is also back. So use this as an opportunity to reflect on your career path, to explore other lifestyles or interests, to a kind of sabbatical. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. The sabbatical, take like the first week or two as a holiday, a regular holiday, and then after that, just explore. Explore yourself, explore your, your neighborhood, live a bit rather than just existing and figure out what you want to do with your life some people don't figure out what they want to do with their lives until they're in their 30s for example and something like this being able to step back in a secure fashion and reflect it could uh, could be very beneficial i think this is a thing that um it should be encouraged a lot of companies do offer the chance to take a career break but it's very much it it's on the down low quite often it's a little bit of a secret you need to get to a certain place in the company before you can say here i want to take a break this this should be across the country as a as a very publicly available thing just say it look i need out give me a couple of months here boom back out back in again you know, people say, oh, well, it'll hurt the economy or whatever, like, but will it hurt the economy more than a bunch of stressed out workers that are unhappy with their, their life choices? I think it'd be better in the long run. I'm very much for it. Idea number three is not uh, an idea as such. It's just a thing. I thought that was funny. Better to weigh yourself on the Wii than to... Better to weigh yourself on the Wii than to wee yourself on the way. I'm a big fan of the Wii. Even more than decade after it came out. We got the Wii Fit. And 
I still use it once a week or so to weigh myself and do the body test and it's a very judgmental piece of plastic. For the most part it gives me a good result saying I'm you know, usually in my mid-twenties uh, which I think for being 40 is a very good result except on my 40th birthday I got onto it and it said I was 47. It's a cheeky little bastard of a piece of plastic. But yeah, I stick with it. I like it. You know, I like the data. I'm not quite sure why I'm I'm so obsessed with data. I just I did I before was that the previous? Okay, see, here's a problem with re doing a second record. There's a thing I thought of here, and I want to talk about it related to this here. But did I talk about that? I know I've talked about it before, but I did I talk about that on the first recording of this episode, or did I talk about it on the previous episode? I don't know. My memory's not that good. But um, yeah, basically, data. Data. Facebook's got your data. Google's got your data. Everyone's got your data. I'm fine with that as long as they give it back to me when I lose my marbles. And then I have to reconstruct my life from the fragmentary evidence of my Google data and my Facebook account telling me what I like. It's obviously going to be drastically skewed but i won't know the difference i'll have no marbles and i'll just be this like automaton that um likes things and uh, goes to airports when i look at my google timeline most of it seems to be airports but this here weigh yourself on the way then we better to weigh yourself on the way than to weigh yourself on the way on the way to work don't know maybe on the way to the way just try and avoid weighing yourself inconvenient the best of times Idea number four, swords with explosive tips. Now, I thought of a couple of different ways of doing this here. I'm thinking more uh, an explosive to facilitate in combat with the sword rather than using it as some sort of mine or bomb. And see, the first thing, thing I thought of was putting some sort of explosive right in the very tip so that whenever you stab somebody with a thrust, it's going to give that, that extra impact but if you're able to hit somebody with a full-on straight thrust of the sword it's probably not going to go well for them whether the sword has an explosive tip or not so you want something that's a little bit broader it's got a better chance of actually coming into contact and doing some damage so then i thought of a kind of like an array of spikes at the tip of the sword so that if you're coming down with a sweeping motion and it impacts then it'll you get a little explosive uh boat like that there possibly with some sort of small bullet now the thing with bullets of course is uh, guns have the barrel and the rifling and the explosive gas is propelling through the barrel what helps propel the bullet long distances but this is pretty much point blank so it doesn't really matter whether you've got a long bar or not. For an example, look at the Quentin Tarantino movie, Inglorious Bastard. There's a scene towards the end when the American soldiers are in the cinema pretending to be waiters, and two of them have these gloves, kind of short, stubby metal things on the back, and when they punch the Nazi in the head, that essentially shoots the gun. There's, there's a trigger mechanism that's activated by, by, by a punch and you look at this thing yeah this is a little bit fantastical but 
it's actually a real weapon that was developed by the U.S. military. I believe it was issued to the Navy. Certainly in the Pacific region is, is where, it was where it was deployed. And the idea being that if you were ashore and caught by surprise, then you could you'd have this weapon on you. People wouldn't immediately realize that it was a weapon. And you could put your hands up and then whenever they approach you, you punch them. And bam, they're shot. Now, this was deployed. There's no evidence that it was ever actually used because it had a couple of flaws. First was the fact that it was such an unusual design. It wasn't proven, so the soldiers or the seamen didn't feel comfortable using it. It was attached to this big glove, which was one size fits all, which means it didn't fit anybody. Also, you only got one glove, and just wearing one big glove is pretty conspicuous. It's had the opposite effect. So it was a real weapon, and you know it was tested. It was shown that you can have a, a gun essentially with a bullet that will have a lethal effect at short range with no barrel. So you essentially deploy something like that on the end of the sword. So you swing the sword, and then you swing down the tip of the sword, bam, there you go, bullet right through the shoulder, done. Sword with explosive tips. Idea number five, time traveler who jumps through time whenever he falls asleep. This is a idea I vaguely had for a story or just a little bit of character there. He would fall asleep, wake up somewhere strange, and then, you know, initially, the first time this happened, he would think it was a dream. And then he'd be wandering around, and then he'd return to his own time, and then he'd find either, oh, his feet are dirty, and he was really running about the place. Or if it's a sort of quantum leap type thing, he's sleeping from body to body, then he would need to find some evidence that he had actually changed time. There's two sources of conflict in this, because any story needs to have conflict of some sort the first is when he travels back to a time and there's some dangerous situation and he needs to get out of the dangerous situation uh, but he can't get the chance to fall asleep because that's how he travels back to his own time by falling asleep but because this dangerous situation is going on he doesn't get a chance to get a bit of a kip and then the other source of conflict is when he, he travels back in time and he realizes, oh, I've got to help these people do something like, for example, he realizes the Hindenburg's going to crash and he's going to try and stop it crashing. But it's in three days time. And so he's got to figure out how he can stay awake for three days or how he can set events in motion to stop this disaster happening before you know, he falls asleep. Or if he tries to stay awake for three days, he becomes increasingly erratic and cranky. There's a couple of questions got about this here. Does it happen every time he falls asleep? You know, is this like every night sort of thing? And if so, does he does he get to sleep? If he falls asleep, does he instantaneously time travel? Or does he get a couple of hours of actual sleep and therefore get some rest? The other question is, if he's in the past and he needs to fall asleep to return to his own time, what if? He knocks himself out. What if he takes some drugs or gets really drunk and artificially induces a state of unconsciousness? Well, the thing I was thinking about that was that 
Yeah, that would induce a time travel event, but it would somehow be wrong. Like he would travel three minutes in the future. Or could he travel in a parallel universe? Or could he travel further into the past? Or maybe he travels back to this time for a minute and then gets yanked back to the time he's at. Basically, if he tries to cheat the system by artificially, by inducing unconsciousness in some fashion other than natural state, it goes wrong. It doesn't work out. You can't cheat. I would call this program Nap Time. Yeah, I think that could be a thing. Today's episode is brought to you by Crane's Crazy Cranes. You like cranes? You like lifting things? Come to Crane's Crazy Cranes. We'll get you a crane for a crazy price. We got the highest cranes, the heaviest cranes, the tallest cranes, the longest cranes, all for the craziest, craziest prizes you've ever seen. We got budget cranes, we got pink cranes, we got blue cranes, we got flamingos. They're not cranes, but they're kind of cranes. We got flapper cranes, we got sea cranes, fire cranes, mobile cranes, underwater cranes, space cranes. We got cranes to satisfy all your lifting needs. Long boom, maximum boom, guaranteed. Every time, all day, all night. We'll come down and see me, Craig's Crazy Cranes on I-195, and you'll get the craziest cranes that you've ever seen. Guaranteed. Great price, Craig's Crazy Cranes. 24-7, I-195. Your one-stop shop for cranes. Okay, idea number six. This is another story, background, flavor for RPG or something. The Swinging Temple with an order of swinging monks on huge chains suspended in a canyon. Acolytes have to get over seasickness and develop a good sense of balance. Picture this. A canyon... A large canyon. The temple itself is a ship. It has to be wood because stone temple would be too heavy. A ship with chains, possibly anchor chain, coming from the bow and the stern and anchoring it to the canyon walls. And they built a further temple buildings on top of the ship. And it hangs there and it sways in the wind. Now, my original idea for why this is there, where it is, is because the god of these monks, this is the spot where it was last seen on Earth, in the world, and it disappeared there and then it vanished in a ball at some point high above the ground. And they couldn't build a building from the bottom of the canyon, river, something. So... They had to essentially suspend their temple. So it's hanging at the spot where the god was last seen. They would live there, getting used to seasickness. Now, the other there's another idea where they had sworn to never touch the ground because reasons, I don't know, it was unclean or something, which then gave rise to the idea of the monks leaving the temple. Whenever they left the temple, they would walk on stilts. Because they can't, they can't touch the ground. I quite like that idea. But the mention of the anchor chains has given me another idea why it might have ended up in this situation. A little bit more far-fetched of this already far-fetched idea. But if a ship in the sea and it's in a whirlpool and then the whirlpool turns into a typhoon and it gets or a tsunami, a tsunami, whatever, it gets washed up over the land and it's hurling hurling through the air and they can see it's going to crash and somehow they can see it's going to crash into this canyon but it's either they're super fast monks or it's falling slowly but they have enough time to react and throw the anchor chains out and the anchor chains catch on the sides of the canyon 
uh, before it crashes. And I realized that even if that was possible, whenever the ship caught on the cannons, it would be torn to pieces. But that doesn't matter. This is some crazy magic going on here. So there you have three possible explanations. But the end result is a temple swinging in the canyon back and forth. Monks on stilts. Let me tell you about idea number seven. This warrants a little bit more investigation, I think. Uh, it's another story idea. Let me just read it as it's written first. The War of the Roses. But the leaders of one side are actually possessed by a demon over generations who's agitating the whole thing. I wrote the War of the Roses. I may have got a little bit confused with the Hundred Years' War, but there is a little bit of overlap there. Hundred Years' War was a war between essentially France and England, the Plantagenets and the other ones. This was at a time when France didn't exactly exist as we know it, and England was in control of bits of France bit of a hangover from the Norman days when France was in control of England. This was a couple of hundred years later. But yeah, 100 years war lasted 116 years. French won, shipped them off back to England. Just a few short years later, a war arose in England between the houses of York and Lancaster over basically who was going to run England. It was a civil war, but it was one of these ones where... The majority of the population didn't really get that involved. Partially, uh, part of the inspiration for uh, Game of Thrones, with the, the Yorks becoming Starks, Lancasters becoming Lannisters, the conflict between North and South comes into play there. Uh, and the Roses comes from the sigils of the two houses, the White Rose and Red Rose, which is mentioned that wasn't really a big deal at the time. It was the it certainly became emphasized more later um, particularly in the Shakespeare play plays where it was used as a dramatic shorthand now where this comes into this story is the idea that you got a hundred years war there um, well you got 116 years for that for the hundred years war and then you've got another 30 or so years for the war of the roses you got essentially 150 years war when your average life expectancy was 40, 50. This is several generations war. Now, not war as we might understand it nowadays. In that, for example, World War Two, When the war started, it was everywhere. Everyone was fighting all the time. The war lasted, as, as we know it in the UK, the war lasted seven years, 39, 45 there was a little bit of a warm-up period in the first six months, and then after that, war, 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 non-stop. This is 150 years of war, which is more like maybe a battle year. Maybe, maybe well, actually, not even. Um, the 100 years war, there was patches several years up to a decade with no war, no battles. It was a thing that essentially happened between the ruling classes every once in a while. One of them would get an army and go down to the other side and they'd have a little scuffle. And that was it. That was how they did wars. But for dramatic purposes, you, you beef it up a little bit, obviously. There's some interesting characters in here. There's uh, Margaret Van Joo, very much maligned and misunderstood. Particularly because of Shakespeare again. A lot of his stuff was propaganda to make Elizabeth and her family look good. 
because, you know, she was in charge at the time. She was the one doing the head chopping off, so of course he was going to butter her up. But it has left an effect in history. So what I'm thinking for this story is there's some sort of demon or supernatural force at play here. And at the beginning of the war, the French realize that this thing and they start attacking or maybe it's the bearer. You Well, you look at history, see who attacked who first. And whoever did the first attack, that's the side of the demon. Maybe there's two demons. But anyway, um, eventually the demon gets driven back to England because the English lost the war, so therefore, yeah, the demon's on the English. It's driven back to England. The French are like, yay, we won. Fuck you, demon. Then the War of the Roses starts because somebody in England realizes, hang on a minute, we've got this demon. We've got to keep fighting the demon. And then they, they defeat the demon. That's what the whole Civil War is about. And then, less than a decade after the end of the War of the Roses, you've got the discovery of America. So maybe, well, okay, back up a sec. You've got Christopher Columbus's voyage to America. Very cheeky to call it Discovery of America. We'll do a whole thing about that one day. But yeah, Christopher Columbus going to America just a couple of years after the end of the War of the Roses. So maybe the the goes to America. That's where your sequels are. Yeah, I, this one there's there's a lot of history going on there. There's there's potential. So idea number eight: plant fresh herbs in parks for public consumption. I am not a fan of grass. I can see it has use in football pitches, maybe bowling greens, but lawns can get bent. You see in parks, there's big grassy areas, some you're not allowed to walk on. There's some patches that have grass that you can't walk on. It's impractical to walk on, surrounding trees, what do you have? Grass. Some sort of short, scrubby material that's a bit more durable would be um, preferable. I don't know what what's clover like for walking on for mixing. Or if it's an area that's not for walking on, wildflowers. Plant wildflowers, bees fucking love wildflowers. And we need to help the bees. Bees are our friends. Not like wasps. Wasps are, actually wasps pollinate as much as bees, but they're bastards. Here's the rule. If it if it's got fuzz, let it buzz. If it's smooth, you better move. So wildflowers, they're good. Or the trouble with wildflowers, of course, is they generally don't do much in the winter. Whereas herbs tend to be quite alright. There's some parks where they have flowers and they take the flowers away. Winter, it's not just in case the flowers die, but they literally take them away. And you often see this in city centres and they go, Oh, look, look, we got flower baskets and shit like that there. But what's the point of that? Because they're not there in the winter. Herbs, plant herbs, have herbs everywhere. Herbs smell nice. People can the herbs. People can cook with the herbs. Encourages cooking. Encourages culinary experiences. And herbs are hearty. Everybody likes a hearty herb. Plant herbs. I was slightly surprised to find that curry is an actual plant. I didn't know this. I thought it was like a kind of mixture of various spices made in this powder. No, it's a plant. You take plant, they turn it into powder. It's curry. Plant smells of curry. It's a curry plant. It's learning. Everybody should learn about these. All right, move on. Idea number nine. Cyborg dragons. This is a simple idea. Cyborg dragons. What complicates it slightly is that cyborgs tend to belong in the science fiction genre. Or possibly science fantasy genre. Whereas dragons are almost exclusively fantasy. Which is generally set in a quasi-medieval period. 
certainly long before the advent of cybernetics. So you're going to run into a little bit of cross-genre complications here. You know, if you introduce cybernetics into your fantasy, then you got some weird time travel thing going on there. And that's just kind of raising all sorts of questions. Because although Dungeons & Dragons or you know Conan or whatever is set in this kind of quasi-medieval period, that's there's no indication of what the future of that society looks like. Will they develop into cyborgs? You know, will they have electronics? How long will that be? What sort of... It raises all kinds of questions. Whereas if you take your future sci-fi and you throw a dragon into that, well, that's easily explained as, hey, that's just what aliens look like on that planet. Or you can just say, who cares? It's super cool. Let's just do it, right? Cyborg dragons. Then the question is, what parts do you have cybernetic? Mm. Well, wings would be a start. Because if you're doing your science fiction genre, then it's quite possible that space is going to be involved. And imagine a cyber dragon flying through space, and you're thinking, hang on a minute, how do you fly in space wings? Well, the thing about your dragon flying is dragons, they have to use some sort of magical fly. Because if you look at the size of your dragon and the size of the wings, it's like, oh, that's nice. But then where's the breastbone? In order for creature that size to fly you need a, a suitably proportioned breastbone to flap the wing the way the wings are usually positioned towards the front and the proportions of dragons are all wrong this does not work on any level particularly if it's the kind of dragon with four legs and wings that's just not a pattern that happens anywhere in nature so already you're on you need some sort of magical thing there to help with the flying so if it's going to use magic to help fly on earth in an atmosphere why shouldn't it use magic to help it fly in space but at the same time you're like why not just give it rockets so it can fly with rockets or here's where the cybernetics comes in a little bit it's got the, the rockets at the back but they're connected to it the tube that goes into its mouth or maybe into its throat so it can breathe fire and it gets directed backwards to propel its own rockets or it opens its mouth and instead of breathing fire it breathes missiles something like that or just having cybernetic legs or just cybernetic wings like uh archangel one of the lamer X-Men, Angel, say, oh, what's your superpower? I've got angel wings and I'm called Angel. And then along comes Apocalypse and slices his wings off and gives him metal razor blade wings and turns them blue for some reason. And he's suddenly more interesting. I think he's probably got his original by now. Who knows? Nothing ever stays done comes. They always go, oh, let's go back to the old way. No! Got a bit of character development here. Something interesting going on. Let's do it the old way. Sometimes people in comics, they do things and you're like, why? Like when they brought Jason Todd back. Jason Todd, if you don't know, he was he was Robin. He was the second Robin after Dick Gray. The original Robin's Dick Grayson. He left and then Batman went and picked up another orphan and says, here, why don't you be Robin? And then the Joker beat him to death with a crowbar in a series called Death in the Family. And there was actually a phone vote readers got to vote on whether or not he was dead and they voted for him to be dead and this had a rather dramatic effect on batman he was rather upset by it and so it went for years and years and years and the whole point of jason todd was to be dead to be the one that batman let down to be 
symbol of Batman's failure. And then some writer thought, hmm, why not bring Jason Todd back to life? And there's several things wrong with it. The first being that didn't really come back with a plausible mechanism for him being brought back to life. There was a bit of nonsense about Superboy punching reality. Uh, it's like, what? What the heck? I mean, not that there is plausible mechanism for being brought back to life, but, you know, it didn't even involve the Lazarus Pit or anything, which had already been established in Batman kind of way of bringing back to life. But then there was also the writer's explanation of why he made this decision to bring the character back. Just said, I want to see what effect that would have on Batman. And that that's the most baffling thing. I was like, what effect? What wanted to explore what effect this character's resurrection would have on Batman when it just doesn't really. Huh? Why? What? As I said, I mean, I believe the whole point of Jason Todd was to be dead. And then got even worse because a few years later, DC went through one of its resets, the thing it does every once in a while. Um, to avoid Superman being 106 years old, they just kind of reset the continuity. So you've got mostly the same characters with more or less the same backstory, except it's gone back to square one. The first time they did this reset, they, they, they went back to, you know, Clark Kent shortly after he revealed himself to be Superman, you know, Batman, when the job a couple of years. You know, it's basically going back to, you know, the start of the story and moving on from there. But then after they did that, they still had Jason Todd. It's like they've reset the continuity, except Jason Todd is still being dead and come back to life. And he's still angry. He's angry because Batman abandoned him. He was dead. I think it's fair enough to abandon somebody once deceased. So really, it's just a whiny little shit. Same as the fourth Robin, Damian Wayne, who's just a whiny little shit. Third Robin, which one? can't remember his name. Dunno, but I digress. Yeah, so now you've got the point where they've reset a couple of times. They're on their fourth Robin, Damien Wayne, Batman's son. So Batman, you generally say that in continuity he's perpetually 35. So 35 is enough time for him to be on his fourth Robin, which is when did he become Batman? To say. I think he'd be a little bit generous say he became Batman when he's 20. Then he spends a couple of years uh, on his own being Batman. Let's say 22. So now he's 35. Four Robins. That's three years of Robin. That's not a lot of fucking... You know, he, why is he going through hiring all these kids and wearing them out? I mean, how old is Robin? You know, it's, it's generally... He's young. He's significantly younger than Batman. First one was... No, Boy Wonder. Boy Wonder, 16. Three years later, bam, he's out on his arse. What the heck is Batman doing with these kids? No. Um, Tim Drake. Tim Drake, that was their Robin. I did get on that. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, Cyborg Dragons. Rocket Space. Leave him well enough alone. Spider-Man comics. God, I can't remember. But anyway, um, Archangel. Yeah, God, yeah, that was... Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, part of the one of the reasons Batman is such a fascinating character is his backstory. But don't want to can't take the piss. You know, I think if character is comic people, I wish just one character stay properly dead. I mean, look at Bucky. He was another one. He was dead. Hard to say how long he was dead for. You know, Captain America came back during World War Two, 
and then carried on for a number of years. And then sometime in the 60s, they decided to do a bit of a reset and say, oh, Captain America was frozen during the war. And this anti-commie Captain America, that was a different Captain America. But yeah, at that point, they also decided to kill off Bucky. So sort of retro killed Bucky in the 60s. Uh, they brought him back, I don't know why. And then Batman's dad? Well, maybe not. There, there's a character in the claims to be Batman's dad. Bit of doubt over whether he actually is or not, and then of course there's um, in parallel universes where where Batman's dad is the Batman, and then Barry Allen. They brought Barry Allen back. That was the thing about the original Crisis in 1985. Barry Allen, the second Flash, sacrificed himself. Sacrificed himself to help save the universe. That's how it was for easily 20 years. Barry Allen was dead. Wally West was the Flash. Formerly Kid Flash became the Flash. And then they also had Jay Garrick, the original Flash, still knocking about somehow, despite being 100 years old. And then at some point they introduced uh, Bart Allen, who was Barry Allen's grandson from the year 3000 or something. I remember. So they had three Flashes, and they still felt the need to bring back Barry Allen. Why? But there you go. It's like, no, just heroic sacrifice. End of story. One of the few characters they've not brought back, to the best of my knowledge, is Uncle Ben, Spider-Man's uncle. Still dead. There you go. Although they have brought back his parents, I think. I believe Uncle Ben's still dead. Aunt May. That's Spider-Man continuity. Spider-Man, Spider-Man does what Spider can. Grows up, falls in love with MJ, marries MJ. MJ, Mary Jane, Wat- Mary Jane Watson. And it was a big thing in the 80s. The, the Spider-Man special wedding issue. Where they got married, it actually happened. They're actually characters grown up and developed, unlike this perpetual thing with Superman, Lois Lane, oh, oh, the girlfriend, oh, nearly married, not married, no, forever. No, these characters grew, they developed. And then some writer thought, why don't we make Spider-Man a kid again in high school? And uh, thought, let's do that there. And then instead of doing... DC thing of the resetting or having a cataclysmic universal wide reset or whatever. They did it in the most ham-fisted, moronic, god-awful way. Somebody takes a hit out on Spider-Man, figures out that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Anyway, sent the sniper after him, didn't shoot him, shot Aunt May. Aunt May, old woman, always been an old woman, elderly. At this point, she's easily in her 80s. Anyway, she's shot. She's going to die. Spider-Man goes around all his mates. Reed Richards, Doctor Strange, Tony Stark. She's like, help Aunt May. And they're like, dude, she's like, really old. We can't, can't help her, but she just let her be. So then Spider-Man goes to Mephisto, who is Marvel Universe version of the devil. He goes to the devil and says, yeah, help Aunt May. Bring her back to life. I'll, I'll do you anything. Mephisto's like, you're an idiot, dude. Terrible sad. But, you know, let's take advantage. And says, yeah, Mephisto says, yeah, I'll do this here. But I want your marriage. Not, I want your wife. I want to take from you the entirety of your marriage. And move it from existence. And Spider-Man says, yeah. And Mary Jean says, she agrees, but then she wants to remember or something. Instead of just letting Aunt May pass on, given that she's lived a rich and full life, now very old, he decides to undo his uh, the last 20 years of it. And so then we get Spider-Man back to the kid again. Perhaps there was less moronic ways of doing that. Yeah, it's it's a problem with the, the role in continuity. 
sometimes you need to reset these you know you need to let characters grow you you, you should let characters grow um, but then sometimes if you want to keep telling stories that character you need to reset things but then sometimes sometimes you should just let them go there's a thing that 2018 does is that they let their characters age this has led to some very sad moments like the death of johnny alpha uh, death of nemesis death of so many characters growing up and die now they've had to fudge a few things over time like judge dread judge dread in his first appearance, he was at least 40. At least 40 when he first appeared. Um, and then he just kept getting older and older. And then you know, things happened. He did get rejuvenated at least once. And then in in the mid-90s, by which point Dread was 60, at least. Uh, I believe that at that point in continuity, that was something like 20, 21, probably about 21, 20. Dread's about 60. Then there's another story called Red Razors, which I'm particularly fond of, about a communist judge who's a former member of the street gang and has a talking horse called Comrade Ed. But that's set in about 2180, and the Soviet judges call for, um, they request the use of Weapon X from Mega City 1, Mega City 1 deploy Weapon X, and it's Judge Dredd, establishing in continuity that Dredd is somehow still about and active, despite being at least 120 years old. It's never explained how, but they they just go with it. I mean, now nowadays, as I speak, Dread is probably he's, he's over eighty, I would imagine by now. Um, how he's still going? Don't know. Don't quite know. Haven't quite followed it in a few years. I need to check that out. But yeah, they had the problem of beloved characters growing and dying. He killed killed Rogue Trooper, killed a Robo Hunter. Most of the ABC Warriors, I think. Not quite sure, but. You know, Hammerstein, Rojo's were several thousand anyway. Been killed Nemesis, I believe, and I think Judge Anderson might have been suicide. And they deal with that by by creating new characters because the comic is it's an anthology. They can do that, discard characters, and occasionally they also do run flashbacks. This is a, a nice workaround for a character to remain interesting. They have to grow and change and develop. Brings us back to Judge Dredd because Dredd, that was part of the thing about Dredd actually. Dredd never changed. I mean, yeah, there's nuances. You know, he was in, in his early days, he was a little bit harsher. He became a little bit slightly more relatable as time went on, but only very, very slightly. The thing about Dredd though is the city. Mega City 1 is the character. Dredd is just a force of nature the thing is just a way of getting into these is a way of getting a viewpoint into stories stories of the city that's that's where i find the most interest i'm not necessarily in that great i mean occasionally yeah you read these things and yeah he goes and he kicks ass and like yeah that's out there but then it's it's the citizens the city itself that i find more interesting like citizen snort or chopper or the taxidermist the lives of people in the city that's that was a character there, which is probably one of the reasons Dredd never took his helmet off. Because if he took his helmet off and you saw his face, then it would be about him. And it's not. He's just long. Which brings us back to Cyborg Dragons. Or rather, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, God. Yeah. But yeah, Cyborg Dragons. Rockets. And that brings us on to idea number 10. Which after that is, is a bit of an anti-climb. But look, let me tell you here what, what I've got here. Alexander the Alright. Alexander the Great's not so great cousin. Now, I was thinking about 
yeah, Alexander is all right. He's try, you know, he is Macedonian, Macedonian, and he goes and tries to conquer Persia as well, but gets lost in the way, or maybe he just starts up a chip fan. You know, he's all right. You know, but then I thought maybe what about Alexander? All right, he's all right. He's a geezer. He's a bit all right. All right, hey. yeah. So it's like essentially the story of Alexander the Great in ancient Macedonia, Macedonia, sort of kind of not really Greece ish. Um, but yeah, so there he is in his tunic and his sandals. He's like, all right, all right, hey. all right, my cockney, cockney spar, all right, my cockney spar, all right, my Harry Poppins, oi. no. But yeah, he's a geezer. He's a bit, oh, hey, completely out of text. Yeah, I think you could maybe do a series like that there, you know. Imagine the year is 40 BC, Roman Senate, togas abound, knives are drawn and thrust into the back of Julius Caesar. And as he falls to the ground, turns around and says, Are you having a laugh, Brutus? Hey, what? I love you, you slag. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, Cockneys through time. Cockney history. Yeah. Jolly Eels on the, um, Queen Elizabeth, she was a Cockney. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, Walter Raleigh comes back and says, Your Majesty, I have discovered potato. And she's like, What's it like with Jolly Eels, my darling? What, I Such a cackle. And, um, that's, that's, that's my ideas. What else am I going to talk about? Do want to add just a, a little bit, little bit of an epilogue here, a bit of bloggery, as it were, because it one of the reasons that it's taken me a month to get this episode out rather than the original week that I planned. I just want to say a little bit about uh, mental head health issues. Um, not that I'm an expert by any means, but I do have a little bit of experience, and I just think it's one of those things that we as a society need to talk about. Now, before I start spouting off, I want to clarify my viewpoint. I reckon that there, there's two categories here, right? There's mental illness which is things like you know, schizophrenia bipolar stuff that has a major life impact and needs professional uh, treatment and assistance and then there's your what I would call mental health issues which is you know intermittent depression and anxiety things that you also need, you know, need a little bit of help and a bit of support but aren't the major life impacting things now the thing that I think needs to happen is we need to start treating these like physical illnesses I mean just because you've got a cold nobody thinks any less of you it's just thing that happens. You take some medicine, you rest up, you look after yourself, and you get better. Now, mental illnesses, you know, the big ones like schizophrenia, they're obviously not going to just go away, but it's, it also needs to be treated like physical illness. You lose a leg, that's that's a big deal, that's that's a major issue, but it can be dealt with. You can get a false leg, you can get physiotherapy, you can get help, you can get support. You know, you're not necessarily going to be able to do all the same things that a person who doesn't have this condition can do, but it doesn't make you any less a person. It's just a thing that's not optimal and you need to make adjustments to deal with it. That's all that there is to it. Um, with the low grade conditions like the kind of you know the passing depressions and, and such like that's it's also just a thing you, you need to you need to deal with and then it gets better. You know? um, how you go about dealing with that of course depends very much on condition and depends on your own circumstances but it's it's not a thing that you should just ignore and hope it goes away. You need to take steps, you need 
take action of some sort or other and yeah that's that's easy to say uh, but I know when you're in the middle of these things and even if you once you catch on to the fact that there's an issue it can be difficult to start the ball rolling to start take those steps you need to make your first steps small and realize that this is not going to instantly fix the problem you got to keep taking those small steps uh, imagine you got to your adult life and you never had a cold and you never known anybody that had a cold you know you just one day you wake up and you got this headache and your nose is bunged and there's snot streaming out of your nose you would freak out you would utterly utterly freak out but we don't freak out because we know that this is a temporary condition it's something that we can deal with you just you take some medicine you eat the chicken soup you rest up for a while and then it goes away and then you're back to your old self again you're better again and a lot of these mental health issues are similar once we recognize that it's this problem and that it's just an illness of some sort that needs to be taken care of then it can be dealt with and then it can get better now i think one of the things that's not helped recently is i've had a cold this past week and i've just discovered that cold medication that now gives me anxiety attacks so you know that that really doesn't help the situation at all but these medications are chocolate of caffeine and things that end with in which is basically stimulants if you've got your head completely on even keel it, it's grand if you're if you're slightly on edge then the, the, that'll just tip you right over um i'm gonna wrap up uh, basic just because you've got some sort of mental health issue or mental illness even it doesn't make you any less of a person and that can be doubly difficult to deal with if you're having anxiety you know anxiety about today not being good enough and then you realize that oh my god i'm having anxiety i've got something wrong with my brain so i'm definitely not good enough and then it's into this spiral so yeah just things seem bad just remember you're 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 a person you're a strong person you can you can deal with these things always look for outside factors that can be aggravating whatever whatever issues there are you know are you taking too much caffeine are you taking too much other stimulants are you not getting enough sleep you know, make sure you get a good night's sleep little things like that can can act as small steps in the right direction just make a small positive action out of your room send a christmas card you know do 20 push-ups something get yourself a small win and then keep adding on those small wins and figure it out you know if if, if you're alright in the head yourself and you realize that somebody you know is having issues don't tell them crap like cheer up love you know it, treat it like another any other illness person needs support and reassurance they don't need to be told oh just buck up and, and get over it just be nice uh, I want to stop rambling but yeah that's that's my thought uh, so yeah next time we'll have another saint I think one of the Russian ones they've got a bunch of interesting looking ones we'll have 10 more ideas and possibly some slightly more coherent blogging. Okay, so yeah, take it easy, kids.